Father, we come to you this morning desiring to know you more. And your goodness, you are a good king that reigns over your good creation, even though it's fractured. Would you help us this morning make sense of the text that we're going to look at? Would your spirit illuminate what is here? Would you help us see clearly what we're meant to see? Give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Father, give us hearts to be transformed. We pray that you would meet us in this time this morning, that you would uh, change us. We need you desperately, and so we ask you to show up. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you, Redemption Peoria. Glad you're here this morning. Uh, I need to survey the room this morning to start off. Uh, all, all of my people that watch movies, who has seen the movie Mary Poppins? Mary Poppins. Okay, so a, a large chunk. Thank you, Matt, with that hand rise. I see you in the back there. Um, Mary Poppins is a 1964 film by Walt Disney. If you haven't seen it, it won five Academy Awards that year, and a lot of film critics say it was Disney's crowning film achievement. For those couple of you, if you have not seen it, it's basically a story about this nanny that comes from a distant land, and she comes in to help mend this family. And even if you've seen, in the last, I think it was 10 years ago, uh, Saving Mr. Banks came out, and that was kind of the story of Walt Disney and the, the original author of Mary Poppins. And really, the story is about this father getting reconnected with his family. Um, but make no bones about it, Mary Poppins is a children's movie. It's got songs in it. It has live actors. It also has cartoons in it. Um, but it's, it's meant for the whole family to watch. I don't know if some of you have seen these things that have come out in, in the last couple of years, but some people will take original clips from movies and they will take them out of context and as a film editor, they will rearrange them to look different like a preview or a trailer. So watch this one on Mary Poppins if you're familiar with the story and check out how it changes based on the arrangement of this preview. Go ahead and watch this. your wife, right? That, that is, uh, I just think that's super creative, right? Um, there's another one that I really like. If you've seen the movie The Shining, which is a horror movie, they take it out of context and they rearrange it and it looks like a family film, this trailer of The Shining. Like, don't take your kids to see The Shining if you see that fake trailer. Um, but, but even what we just watched, every scene in there is actually from the movie. They didn't, they didn't add anything other than the scary move, the, the, the music in the background, and they kind of rearranged some of it. So if you're not familiar with the full story or the movie of Mary Poppins and you watch that, you're going to go, 
oh my goodness, this is a horror film. Like, this is really scary. I might want to go see this if you're into scary movies. But that's not actually the full breadth of the story. And what we're going to see this morning as we've been tracking through this series called We Want a King in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. And for some people that don't understand the full scope of this story, they don't understand the beginning until the end of what God is trying to do in the true story of the world, and they only see 1 Samuel 15 with modern lenses, it's like scary Mary. They go like, oh, this God, you say this God is a God of love. How do you reconcile what he does in 1 Samuel 15? But they're not taking into account the full story and the full breadth of what the Bible is trying to do and what God is trying to communicate to us. And so we're going to look at that. And what we're going to do this morning is kind of a two-prong approach this morning. The first half of the sermon as we look at 1 Samuel 15 is really going to be like an apologetic of like, okay, what do we do with these Old Testament verses that read in a way that we can't quite make sense of, right? Old Testament scholar John Walton, he said, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us, right? The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written to us. It, we're not the original audience, and so we're going to hear things and read things differently with our 21st century lenses and ears on, and it's not going to always make sense. And so some of the work we need to do in understanding some of these Old Testament and even New Testament passages is what was the original audience hearing? What's the cultural context? How do we make sense of it instead of jumping to conclusions as we read the text with our own lenses on it? So anytime you read the Bible, you have to do that. And so that's going to be the first half of what we're going to be looking at today in 1 Samuel 15. And the second half will be like, even after we do some of those apologetics of what's actually happening in the language, like, what is this passage really about? Like, because it's, it, we have to get over those things theologically and in, within the language, but then it's going like, what is actually the Bible trying to do here in this story with the context of Saul as we've been tracing his story for the last several weeks? And this is kind of the last main look at Saul as we're going to get introduced to David next week. Saul will still show up in the story, but this is kind of his last scene as far as the king goes. He'll still be the king, but this is when the kingdom gets ripped away from him. And so what does it actually mean? What's the Bible trying to do? What's the text trying to do for us today? So those are kind of where we're going to go in the midst of the conversation this morning. And what I want to do is I want to read the whole chapter. It's 35 verses. It's going to be a, a little bit of a read. So if you have a Bible, open it up, track along with me. And what I want to do is I want to read the full story so we can track with it together every little bit and piece of it. And then we'll go into kind of these two areas of understanding the cultural context and the scope of the full story, and then understanding what's the main thrust of the story, what's the Bible trying to do for us in this chapter. So 1 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go all the way through verse 35. Read along with me if you can, and continue to stay engaged and track in this story. It says this in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Verse 4. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teliam. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. 
And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go out from the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people in Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havel to as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of sheep and oxen and the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. They would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they voted to destruction. Verse 10. So the word, the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Samuel was angry. He cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed and went on down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, I have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. Verse 17. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone to the mission on which the Lord had sent me. I have brought King Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to your neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie and have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. 
And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. Samuel hacked Agag pieces before the Lord of Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Okay. There's a lot there. I don't know if you picked that up, if this is the first time you've ever read this passage, if you read it before you showed up on Sunday. But man, there are some potential problems as we read this text of what we believe about God and his nature and what we're reading here. So let's do our best to make sense of it, help us understand what's actually happening. And I'm going to pull from several sources this morning just to give credit where credit is due. Uh, Joshua Butler, who's one of our pastors at Redemption Tempe, he's written a, a whole book called Skeletons in God's Closets. Like, what do you do with passages like this? And he has a whole chapter, chapter three, which is similar to uh, this language. He talks about the Canaanites. This is dealing with the Amalekites. He's been massively helpful. I'm going to pull from J. J.D. Greer, and his, uh, he's a pastor in North Carolina, and his commentary, and then Tim Chester has been helpful as a resource as well. So those are kind of the main people that I'm pulling from. So this first part, let's understand uh, the cultural context. What's the scope in the full story so we don't read this chapter and think it's like Scary Mary? Because I don't know about you, but people I have conversations with that don't follow Jesus, this is one of the things they'll point to. Oh, you have a loving God. What do you do with 1 Samuel 15? And he says, go and kill these infants. That doesn't seem congruent, right? So five things. These are from Josh Butler that I think will be helpful for us in understanding what the cultural context is and how we can hear this uh, to the original uh, readers. The first is to understand the history of the Amalekites, to understand the history of the Amalekites. Last week, I happened upon um, uh, a documentary on Steven Spielberg, the film director. And uh, did you know that he grew up here in Phoenix? Spielberg, that's great. Uh, anyway, um, it was kind of showing kind of how he produced movies and his, the way he decided to make decisions with, with filmmaking, things like that. And then, you know, towards the end of the documentary, it showed his movie Schindler's List, uh, which if you haven't seen it, man, it's a really hard watch, but it's about the Holocaust and the Nazis and the Jewish people, and he's Jewish himself. Um, and even watching scenes in that movie as the Nazis killed people, it's just, hard. it's just hard to watch. I mean, it's a hard thing what these people were doing to the Jewish people trying to eradicate them. The Amalekites, sometimes we read this passage and we don't have any context for who they are, but they're like the Nazis. Matter of fact, even in World War II, when uh, the Jewish people were in concentrations camp heading to their death, do you know what they called the Nazis? They called them Amalekites because they're referencing back to this story about how these people were bent on destroying God's people in terrible, terrible ways, and they were praying that God would rescue them in the midst of World War II. And throughout the story, if we're paying attention to the Old Testament, the Amalekites are terrible people. They do terrible things to God's people and others. We first encounter them when uh, God's people come out of slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapter 17, and they're wandering, and the Amalekites see them, and they say, oh, this group is vulnerable. Let's go take charge. And they do terrible, terrible things to God's people. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 and 18 God is instructing his people, and he says, Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. 
These people continue to come after God's people. They are not neutral. They are enemies of God. We need to recognize that in the scope of the story. The second thing we need to realize in the context and what the original hearers would, would hear is the context of a military city. We see that God's people are to go, Saul's instructed to go after the city of the Amalekites. And we need to understand when we use that language city now, usually if I said, hey, this is my city, I'm thinking of Peoria, I'm thinking of the broader city of Phoenix. When we say the word city right now, we're thinking, oh, like I walk this way and there's the grocery store and the school and I walk that way and there's restaurants and businesses. That's the city where people inhabit. But in the ancient Near East, that's not how the word was used. People lived in the village up the road from the city. The city was a garrison. It was, if you've heard the, the language of the gates of the city, it was really a military outpost. It was a fort. It was where the military would go and they would stand ground to protect the village up the road. And so it wasn't like there were a lot of people there other than military people. So that's helpful to understand the context as well when it's saying like, listen, you need to go to the city and destroy the city. Uh, we have to think of it more of like, uh, we, it'd be like somebody coming to destroy the Pentagon versus all of Washington, DC. It's somebody coming and destroying the Great Wall of China versus all of Beijing. That's the context of the passage. The third thing we need to recognize and be aware of is the nature of ancient warfare. How is this battle taking place? And again, some of us, because of our imagination of what we've grown up in, and we think of like uh, medieval times or ancient battles, we think of a big castle and everybody's in that castle and then somebody storms the castle and women and children are going like this and they're dying. Like, that's not the context of this passage. Again, they lived up in the village and when there was any threat of war, if anybody was even near the city or the city gates or the garrison, man, they would hightail it out of there. They would leave. So more than likely, there were not women present, there were not children present, there were not infants present during this time and this call. And it's helpful to realize that Hebrew scholars note that the, the phrase women, men, men, women, children, infants, and animals is stock language for all, for everything. So it's not specific to that idea, but it's a general way of saying like, you need to take everything out. And really what God is saying is he wants to remove the enemy outpost from his kingdom. This enemy's outpost needs to go away. That is what's going on in the cultural context. And so the original audience would have heard this as like a military fight. They wouldn't have thought of like a civilian massacre as we might read it today. The fourth thing to be aware of is ancient war language. Uh, Josh Butler calls this ancient trash talk, right? The way that the people would talk about war in the ancient Near East, not just in the Bible, but in all of ancient Near East, you can read records of the way that people would talk about a military victory. There was a lot of hyperbole in the midst of a military victory. They would say words like, man, we annihilated them. We wiped them off the face of the planet. They're never around again. And then if you continue to read the history books, like, the people they talked about wiping out like a year later, two years later, they're around causing all types of trouble. It's because the, the way that you would talk in that language, there were a lot of hyperboles. It's kind of like this in our culture. If you play basketball and you play a game and your team does really well, you come back in the locker room and you're kind of celebrating, you're like, we killed them. 
We annihilated them. We wiped the floor with them. They couldn't get anything past our defense. Now, if you didn't understand the sport of basketball and the language context and you didn't watch the game and you heard that language and you came in and you go, well, like, it seems like it was 120 to zero from that type of talk. And you go out to the scoreboard and you look and it's like, well, it's 100 to 80. Right? It's a, it's a decisive victory, but you're not going to go back into the basketball players and go like, well, why, why are you lying? Clearly they got the ball by you. Like the basketball players are understanding the language they're using in their context to make a point, to make the point that it was a decisive victory. And this happened all the time in ancient conversation and rhetoric around war. Old Testament scholar Chris Wright says it this way. He says, we must also recognize that the language of warfare had a conventional rhetoric that liked to make absolute and universal claims about total victory and completely wiping out the enemy. Such rhetoric often exceeded reality on the ground. It's not to excuse the biblical writers of falsehood, but to recognize the literary conventions of writing about warfare. They're speaking in the language that the original audience would understand. They wouldn't think again, how we think and how we're listening to the text this morning. And so when he says, when Wright says, like, it's not to accuse the biblical writers of falsehood, it's the same idea, again, of going into the basketball players and like, man, you guys are just liars. They're going, well, no, like, this is how we speak. It's understood how we speak in the language and the context that we're speaking. The same thing would be true about this warfare language. And then the fifth thing I think that's helpful for us to to kind of make sense of this text as we read it today is that the Amalekites are still around, right? If you read the story and you're like, okay, God tells them to wipe everybody out and Saul says, hey, we wipe everybody out except the king. And then you see what Samuel does at the end of the chapter to the king. And so you're going like, okay, well, they're gone. Just keep reading for Samuel. At the very end of it, the Amalekites come in and they raid this, the, the, the town village. And they take the women and they take the children as King David is over them. And so they're not wiped out. Again, the language is hyperbole on a lot of levels. Now, you might go like, well, John, like, are you just trying to soften up the Bible? <laughs> like, are you just trying to make it palatable? Uh, I, don't, I don't think that's what I'm trying to do. What I'm trying to do is help us understand the cultural context to make sense of it. Right? To not look at this chapter and go, well, that's like scary Mary. Like, oh my goodness. And to equip you when you have conversations with people that aren't Christians or they kind of point to this passage and go, like, your God is different in the Old Testament than the New Testament. And you go, actually, no, you just don't really understand the cultural context of what's happening here. We have to do the hard work that it's nuanced. It's not like this caricature that gets painted of God if you only read this chapter. Again, that's, that would be like watching the Scary Mary thing and going like, Mary Poppins is a horror film. Doesn't make sense in the full scope of the story. And ultimately, what is happening here with all of that cultural context, hopefully to help you, is actually this is a really good thing. In the scope of God being good and a good king, it's actually good and powerful because the bigger picture in the scope of the entire story is that God wants to remove the enemy from his kingdom. And we all want that too. Right? We want evil to be done away with. We don't want that to be the case anymore. And God in his story, his good kingdom is coming and he will be victorious over his enemies. He will because he's a good God and he's a just God and evil will eventually go away. 
And those who remain unrepentant or opposed to him and his kingdom are actually headed for destruction. If you look at the full scope of the story. And so what we should pull from this, even contextually, is this idea of like, we need to not be an enemy of God. Because at the end of the day, God will win. And his enemies will be destroyed. And so you might be sitting there going, well, like, if you haven't made a decision for Jesus, going, well, I'm not an enemy of God. I haven't invaded countries. I haven't killed innocent people. I kind of give God space and I take my space and we should be good. I'm not actively rebelling against God, but the Bible in the scope of the story says something different. It says because of sin, we're actually all enemies of God at the start. That's our starting point. Because of a rebellion against God and the things we do in a selfish way that we're all found guilty, we're all found in the camp of enemies of God until Jesus comes and changes us. That's just true for all of us. We've all vandalized and violated God's good creation. So we find ourselves in this enemy camp until you make the decision for Jesus. But the beauty of the gospel, he doesn't leave us in this enemy camp. He sends a rescuer. He sends a king. He sends the person of Jesus to live the perfect life and die the death you deserve because of your sin so that you can be reconciled. And now you can be a friend of God and a citizen of the kingdom. So for some of us that are sitting here, and maybe you grew up in church, or somebody brought you, and you're going, well, like, I've never really made a decision about Jesus, I would just encourage you, don't put it off. Like, don't wait and kind of be in this kind of neutral zone. I mean, Jesus is clear when he says, you're either for me or you're against me. We need Jesus. Otherwise, we're enemies of God. So make the decision today. Talk to somebody that brought you. Talk to one of us of like, what does it actually mean to bend my knee to the king of the universe? Because again, God is patient. Man, he's so patient. He's annoyingly patient. He really is. Because even you think Israel, it's like um, the Amalekites keep coming after. It's like God promised to wipe them out, but they keep, they're still around because God is patient with them. But God's patience will run out. It's clear if you understand the story and you read Revelation, like, ultimately God will win in the end. So understand where you are, and none of us are promised tomorrow. That's important for us to realize. So hopefully that, that's helpful in the scope of this text and other uh, seemingly troubling texts in the Old Testament to make sense of them, to understand, man, they're super nuanced, and sometimes we're not hearing correctly because we don't hear the full cultural context of the original audience. So let's move on to, once we kind of jumped that hurdle and understood more of what is going on here in the cultural context, like, what is chapter 15 actually trying to do to us? Like, what's the story of Saul? Where have you led? We've been seeing his rise and even how God uses him at times, but then last week we saw in chapters 13 and 14, like, he starts to die, right? Because of his pride, because of he doesn't know who he is, and he's kind of chasing these things, he's on his downward spiral, and in chapter 15 is kind of the bottom of that, as his pride continues to build. And really what this chapter is about is really it's about obedience. It's about how obedience actually really matters in God's economy. It might not matter as much in our economy because you can kind of skate by or I'm better than that or like you can kind of grade on a curve, but in God's economy, obedience really matters. And not only does obedience matter, 
But what do you do when you get caught in your disobedience? That's, I think, what the text is trying to push us to. So let's jump into what that actually means for us. And again, I'm pulling from J.D. Greer's commentary here. He's got um, five things that he would classify as anatomy, an anatomy of disobedience. Like, man, how do we get here? How do we disobey? And what are the things we need to be aware of to take obedience seriously? Number one is this, that disobedience is anything less than full, immediate obedience. In God's kingdom, and God's economy, disobedience is anything less than full, immediate obedience. And you don't see that mentality in Saul. Again, Saul is kind of like, I'm grading on a curve, like, and you kind of feel bad for Saul. Again, if you're just reading this at face value, like, he did, like, he just spared the king. It feels like he's just giving grace to not kill this guy, and he's killed everybody else, and the people are kind of squirrely, like, he's going to get the kingdom thrown from him for this? For, for this? And then you look at what David did, and you're like, well, those don't match at all. Like, why is God so judgmental on Saul, and he calls David a man after his own heart? It doesn't seem to make sense. But again, in God's economy, any level of disobedience matters. We used to say this to our kids all the time when they were little, right? Maybe you've said this phrase before. Um, delayed obedience is disobedience, right? Delayed obedience is disobedience. Because we'd be like, hey, I need you to put your shoes away when you come in the house or whatever. And then an hour later, I'd walk around the corner. Their shoes are still there. They're not in the right place. And I'd be like, hey, you didn't put your shoes. Oh, I'm going to. Yeah, 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 I I'm going to put them away. And we say, like, listen, we ask you to put them away right now. Delayed obedience is disobedient. For some of us, we've played that game with God. We're just delaying things. I'm going, well, I'll get to it at some point. And in God's kingdom economy, he's going like, listen, if you're not going to obey right now, it's disobedience. I have conversations with guys all the time when we're in college ministry, and they're going, well, look, 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 I'll, I'll get to making a decision about Jesus. I just want to live the college life. And you're going, no decision is a decision about Jesus. And you're staying in this enemy category, and you don't know how long you have. That's point one. The second point of this anatomy of disobedience is that disobedience grows out of a greedy desire. Grows out of a greedy desire. And I would include pride, as we talked about that last week, like this prideful, greedy desire. We see it in the first people in Adam and Eve, what makes them call, what makes them disobey is one of the things that get tricked into believing is you can be like God. You can know what he knows. And so there's this greed and this pride that takes place internally that drives them to their disobedience. And we see the same thing in Saul. We might read it at face value and go, well, like, Saul's just sparing the king. He's, he's not killing a guy. That feels like grace to me. But Saul didn't spare Agag for grace. He didn't spare Agag because, well, this guy seems like a good guy. No, if you understand the context of when you would conquer uh, a city or a people, what you would do is typically you would hold the king, and when you come back to your city or village, you would kind of parade these people as kind of trophies behind you. So that's what Saul's doing. That's why he spares Agag in this moment. It's because it boosts him up. It makes him look better. It's greedy on his part not to follow through with what the Lord has called him to do. And oftentimes that's the case with us too, that when we start to disobey, it's growing out of this place of greed and pride often. Number three, disobedience further estranges us from God 
leading to increasingly irrational behavior. Man, isn't that statement true? Right? Any movie you end up watching and somebody gets caught up in a lie, what happens? Then they got to lie about the lie, and, then they, and it just begins to snowball. And more irrational behavior takes place because, man, you're already guilty, so I'm going to try and cover it up. And, ah, oh, that didn't work, and then i got to cover it up more. And the same thing is true with us, whether it's lying or cheating or looking at pornography. is going, well, like, I stepped out of bounds. Clearly, I'm out of bounds now. Well, I'm just going to go all the way out of bounds because I'm already here. And this is kind of what my heart is kind of going after anyway. And it leads to this estrangement from God, and you get more and more distant from him. Not only does it that, but you start doing irrational behavior. You start lying. You start covering up. That happens all the time in the midst of our disobedience. The fourth thing in this anatomy of disobedience is that disobedience exposed creates a choice, self-deception or repentance. So what Greer is saying here is like when you do get caught in your disobedience, it creates a choice in that moment. You can either self-deceive and rationalize or you can repent. You can turn from your behavior, you can show a soft heart, and you can change your direction. Now, in the midst of this fourth one, I want to peel off and talk about this one specifically using Tim Chester's five things that we kind of use, that Saul uses, that we do all the time. Because I think this is really the crux of what's happening with Saul and why it's his downfall and why it's different than David. Because David has a repentant heart. When you see David get caught in disobedience, which we'll see down the line, he doesn't do what Saul does. He doesn't do this self-deceptive kind of like, well, I did this and I did that. And no, no, I obeyed. I obeyed. No, David falls to his knees and repents. And so for us to understand that we're all going to disobey for the rest of our life until Jesus comes back. So what do we do when we do disobey and we get caught? What is our next step? five things that Tim Chester says when he talks about this passage in Saul and kind of understanding that we have a choice in the midst of being exposed in our disobedience. We can either uh, self-deceive ourselves or repent. These are five things that he says Saul says that we say all the time, right? The first is, well, well, look what I've done. You see that in verse 20, right? Saul doesn't go, well, yeah, I actually still have the king, and I didn't fully obey the He goes, no, 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 look what I did. I, look, we wiped all the people out. Let, let me show you what I did. Don't, don't focus on the things I didn't do. Let me just put that behind my back. Like, like, focus on the things I did do. That should make you happy. That, that should be okay. And God's going, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. And we say this all the time. I mean, like, you could say, like, man, well, yeah, I got angry at him at church. I'm not pointing to you. I don't know what happened to David. <laughs> like, I, I got angry at him at church, but at least I'm at church. Like, look at the things I did do, not, not the things I'm doing poorly. That's self-deception. Second thing is everybody else does it. Right? This is what Saul points to. Right in verse 15 and verse 21, he's going like, like the people took all the animals, they all did it, and, and then, oh, by the way, he throws in that they took Agag too. Like, it's actually, it's actually the people. Everybody else is doing it, so that should allow me to do it as well. And that's totally deceptive. It'd be like if you stole something 
You know, you went into a convenience store and you stole a pack of gum. Sometimes when I'm with people, I ask that question, like, have you ever shoplifted? It's just a fun icebreaker, right? And then it's just super vulnerable. Like, well, what have you stolen? And I talk about the stuff I stole and we repent. No, we don't glorify the sin, but we're just like, oh, this is reality. I wasn't walking with Jesus. And uh, you try it on for yourself. Um, but like, if you go in and you steal something and you steal, you know, whatever it is, and then you get caught in that shoplifting or what, like, like, well, everybody kind of does it. At least I didn't pull a gun. At least I didn't do it this way. This, this is no big deal. In God's economy, disobedience is a big deal. Even if everybody's doing it, it's a big deal. Third one, and this one's the hardest one for me, if I'm honest with these five. Man, it seemed like the sensible thing to do. Right? See, it seems like it makes sense. Even from Saul's rhetoric in verse 15, he's going like, oh, well, well, like, we kept these animals because we're going to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, he says, right? Not my God. Like, all Saul's little intricate language, right? He built an altar, what, to himself in this passage. The pride is just building at this point in his life and in these little nuances. And so he's like, well, like, we kept the animals because we know we're supposed to sacrifice, and that's a good thing, and so we don't want to just throw them away. That feels like it was a waste. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like, no, he told you not to leave anything alive at the city. And we do this all the time, right? It seems to make sense to me. Like, I know churches that um, license software for the computers, and it's very clear that this is only one license for one computer. And they go, well, we'll just share it. Like, it seems to make sense. We're saving money on the budget. It's not hurting anybody. Like, and you're going like, that's not okay. Or maybe you've heard this one from um, your non-Christians or your Christian friends. It's like, listen, we're engaged, and in two months we're going to get married. I just got out of my apartment lease for two months, and I don't have anywhere to live for those next two months. So, like, it makes sense to just move in together. I mean, we'll live in separate bedrooms, like, right? Like, we'll, we'll, like, it makes sense. It doesn't make any sense for me to sleep on a couch for two months or get into a lease for two. Like, it doesn't make any sense. This makes sense. A lot of times we're sinning in the midst of making sense. And God's going, don't do that. That's not the reason to disobey. The fourth thing that we see and we kind of say to ourselves when we get caught in disobedience, I did it for God. Verse 21, again, this is what Saul is saying. He's like, man, we kept the animals, the sacrifice for God. We're, we're doing it for God. And how many times have we seen people kind of use this rhetoric of like gossip for prayer meetings or things like that that go, well, we're doing it for God. It's a good thing. Or they kind of boost or exaggerate their testimony because it glorifies God more. And they're just lying, but they're doing it for God. We get caught in this trap all the time if you grow up in the church. We can kind of rationalize because nobody wants to get caught disobeying. Nobody wants that. So we self-deceive all the time using some of this rhetoric and some of this language. And then the last one, number five, is I was afraid of other people. All right, this is what Saul says in verse 24. He finally kind of gives this like pseudo-confession, right? It's lip service. We even see it in the text as, like, he's going like, well, like, forgive me. Like, like oh, I, I kind of, I, I admit it. I admit it. And then Samuel's like, no. And he turns away. And you see what Samuel does, or Saul does. I don't think because he really wants repentance, because he doesn't want that to look the way it does in front of other people. 
He even says, like, you need to restore me in front of the elders, restore me in in front of the people, because he cares about what the other people think. Because he's, again, he's wrapped up in not knowing who he is, and he's wrapped up in his pride. And so, again, we do this all the time. Right? We give the excuse in our sin or disobedience, well, I, I, I was afraid of this or I was afraid of that. Or even when we do get caught, we go, well, I don't want to admit it because it's going to hurt that person. And really what you're saying is you're afraid of their response and their reaction. It's less about like hurting that other person and more about protecting yourself if you're honest. So these are five things I think we see Saul doing, we do them all the time in the midst of our disobedience getting exposed. And then we have this choice. Are we going to self-deceive with this type of stuff that seems culturally acceptable? It seems like it's okay. And even pastors and leaders, sometimes we come alongside people and we go like, man, you're right. You just had a hard week. And like, we, we kind of make it okay, these five things, instead of going, actually, this was not okay. And actually, we need to turn from this and not self-deceive ourselves and grade on this curve, but going like, you're only found repentant in Jesus, right? And that's the fifth thing of, of J.D. Greer's kind of anatomy of disobedience as he kind of wraps up the list. He says, disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel. And man, there's a beauty to that. If we really believe that when we get caught, when we disobey, that we can find freedom at the foot of the cross. That we don't have to tell everybody our stories and make ourselves feel better about ourselves when we disobey, but we hide behind the cross. We sit in the blood and we go, it's only Jesus that gives me the ability to be free. And I know I'm gonna have to deal with the consequences of hurting people, but I'm trusting in my identity in Christ. I'm trusting that he's freed me and I'm trusting I'm not okay without him. And so when you come down and you take communion as a believer in Christ, that's what you're doing. You're putting all that negotiation language beside, and you're going, it's only because of the cross. It's only because Jesus that have freedom. And you don't play this game anymore, and you go, it's only him. That's it. God holds the gavel. Not you, not me, not anybody else. And I get my freedom and identity from what Jesus has done on the cross. And I live my life in that vein. This is the choice for all of us. We can be unrepentant of Saul. And some of it's like, man, we read this Old Testament, and now how Jesus comes into the narrative and into the covenant, that his spirit lives in us, and that we can every week come back. We don't have to have an extra sacrifice. We have Jesus once and for all. And we can go to him, and we can find freedom in him. But most of us don't live in that freedom. We live in this self-justifying kind of cul-de-sac. Instead of going like, I got nothing. I have nothing. That's where we need to live. That's where we need to anchor our self-worth. Is in what Christ has done for us, not all those other things. Let's be men and women like David in the way he repents, which we'll get to, versus Saul in the kind of building this straw man argument of why he didn't really disobey. Because we see the result of that. And we don't have to live that way. What the gospel does is it points us not to have to live that way. Other than that, you're just not really grabbing on to what Jesus has done for you. 
If you're in the category of going like, oh, I'm just so shameful, like I can't get over it, like you're saying like what Jesus has done on the cross, as we look back in John at the end of the agony that he takes on the cross and the separation from the Father, you're going, well, that's not enough for the sin I did. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Let's embrace what Jesus has done for us. Let's be men and women of humility. As we take communion this morning, if you're a follower of Christ, would you be reminded of his sacrifice for you and that you are free? And maybe your prayer is, I don't want to play this game anymore of self-deceptive language. I want to be honest. Maybe I need to talk to somebody. Maybe I need to confess something to someone because my identity is in Christ and that's where I get my worth. That's where I get my value. Let's pray. Father, thanks that you sent your son to be the better king for us. That we serve a king who didn't live in partial obedience, but in full obedience. Jesus, you didn't make excuses, but you made atonement. Jesus, you gave your life so we could move from being an enemy of yours to be a friend and a citizen of your kingdom. Would you help us? This is so hard. So many of us have been conditioned to put up walls and protect ourselves. And I pray that you would be the thing that protects us as we move forward. We so need you. We so need you to unravel these lies that the enemy would use to say we need to protect ourselves. And would we make you our protection, our only defense? Pray that that's the case. We ask you in your name. Amen.